right. Good morning, everybody. Have your Bible with you. Revelation chapter 18 is where you need to turn. I hope you have a Bible close by. Um, get, get close to a Bible. You need to follow along as we study God's Word together. It's a, it's a real delight to see you all here today. I like to see you here today. There's one brother uh, that I've met over the last 18 months, and, and he's back with us visiting again today, and this is the first time I've seen his face. And um, some of you, this is the first time I've seen your face in a long time, and I'm, I'm thankful to see you today. And I'm thankful to hear you today. What a delight it is to hear you before the service, chatting, chattering with one another. Um, if that mic had never come on, I don't know that we would have ever gotten you calmed down um, and, and paying attention to Joe. Um, it's good to hear you talking with one another, fellowshipping together. It's good to hear you singing with one big mega voice. That was, that was precious. Um, and it's been, it's been good today. If, if you have a friend um, who has been in the past a part of First Baptist and hasn't been lately, and this week may be a good, good time to invite them to come back, to encourage them to come back um, and, and rejoin what the Lord is doing around here. Well, in our study of Revelation last week, we looked at the fall of Babylon. I want to remind you that the imagery of Babylon is rich. It's vibrant Old Testament paint like we've talked about a number of times. Babylon in Revelation represents the worldly system that is opposed to God. Babylon is the essence of man-centeredness, the essence of selfishness and idolatry and immorality. And for John's original audience, they would have seen Rome as the manifestation of Babylon for them in their day. One of the things that we're going to try to consider today is where is our Babylon? Where is Babylon for us today? But listen, the most important thing to know about Babylon, whether we're talking about the first century or the 21st century, is that Babylon will not last. The doom of Babylon is absolutely sure and certain. The kingdoms of this world will not last. They are only temporary. And so you better make sure that you have citizenship in a kingdom that is eternal by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The fall of every worldly kingdom is certain because of its rejection of God. And only a fool would live for a kingdom that is only temporary and destined for the wrath of God. Now, despite the constant temptation for us to live just like the world, God's people, we as God's people, must live with holiness while we are in the world, evidencing by our lives that we belong to Him and we are of His kingdom that is eternal. But make no mistake, one of the things we learn in Revelation chapter 18 is that it will not be easy to live as God's people here. When we are surrounded by Babylonian culture, by Babylonian values, by worldly systems of thought and action, it will not be easy to live as God's people in a context like this. Well, last week we saw the announcement of Babylon's fall. And this week what we're going to see is the response to that fall. From those who belong to Babylon first from those who are part of her worldly system, and then we will see the response of the people of God and the angels in heaven to the fall of Babylon. And you'll see that those two responses, the response of the, of the people of Babylon and the response of the people of God, could not be more different. They couldn't be more opposite. So let's read it together. Revelation chapter 18. We're going to study verses 9 through 24 today. This is God's word. It says, In the kings of the earth... Who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. 
and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory, every article made from very costly woods and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit, the fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things, who became rich from her, will stand at a distance because of her fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearl. For in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many have, as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out when they saw the smoke of her burning saying, what city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out weeping and mourning saying, woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth for in one hour she has been laid waste. Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heavens, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. The sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman or any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful to be here today, so thankful to be together. Most of all, we are thankful to be in your presence. That is a gift that we do not deserve. And we stand here with confidence and boldness, not because of anything in us, not because of our righteousness or our worth, but because of Christ who died in our place and rose again. We come to you in his name, and we ask for your help to understand this passage. We need your help to apply it rightly. So give us ears to hear what you want to say to us today and help us to live as your people in this broken world. Father, we, we pray that you would tear down idols in our lives today. Shatter them in front of us and lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be completely submissive and obedient to him. Father, you, you have given us a sweet time already in your presence this day. Pray that this word, as hard as it is to preach, as hard as it is to hear, will only take us further into your presence. Pray that you grant this by grace in Christ's name. Amen. 
So there are two big parts of the passage that we're going to study today. The response of the Babylonians to the fall of Babylon, and then the response of the people of God to the fall of Babylon. And that first part of the text, the response of the Babylonians to the fall of Babylon, actually has three subparts. You're going to see the response of the kings of the earth, then the merchants, and then the group that I will call sailors, these guys who live by the sea and are involved with boats. And we're going to take a pretty high altitude look at each of these three before we dive into verse 20, which is really the key to the whole text and the response of the people of God to the fall of Babylon. So let's look first at the kings of the earth. Look at it in verse 9 and 10. It says, The kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, they will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. There are a few things, I think five things, that I want you to notice about the kings of the earth. The first thing is this. These are the kings of the earth. They are the kings of the earth. This seems to be parallel with John's usage in Revelation of those who dwell on the earth. We've seen that language multiple times, that he distinguishes those who dwell on the earth, those who are of the earth, those who are of the beast and Babylon and the prostitute. He distinguishes those who dwell on the earth from those who belong to God, those who have been called out, those who are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he seems to be aligning these kings with those who dwell on the earth. They are the kings of the earth. They, they are powerful people, powerful men, but make no mistake, their power is limited to the earth. They are not the kings of the heavens. They are the kings of the earth. Second thing I want you to notice is that these guys are in tight with Babylon. The text says that they committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her. In other words, what we need to see is they weren't dragged into her sinfulness. They weren't dragged into her idolatry against their wills. No, they walked with that prostitute because that's what they wanted. That's what they desired. They did exactly what they wanted to do with Babylon, and they are therefore guilty. The guilt here is not just the system. It's not just Babylon as that world system. It's guilty upon everyone who participates in that system. The kings of the earth are also guilty with Babylon. They are in tight with Babylon. Third thing is that these kings weep, but they weep over their demise, not just her demise. This is a common theme in this section of, of scripture, and it's going to develop further in the text. We're going to come to see that all of these groups, these three groups, they weep, and their weeping is selfish. They are weeping over what they lost, not about how they sinned and offended God and feel the weight of his holiness upon them. They are not weeping over their sin in remorse for their sin. They are weeping over their loss of worldly gain. There is a kind of mourning, there's a kind of weeping that is godly and leads to repentance. And there's a kind of weeping, a kind of mourning that is worldly and leads to death. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Look at this text on the screen with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10, Paul says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. That's the kind of sorrow we want to experience over our sin, right? We, we want to experience sorrow over our sin that leads to repentance, which leads to life. And there's no regret about that kind of sorrow. But there's another kind of sorrow that comes from the world, Paul says, and produces death. 
And that is the sorrow that's being expressed by these Babylonians when they, when they reflect on the fall of Babylon. They are weeping, but it is not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. It is worldly sorrow that is going to, going to lead to their death. They are weeping over her demise because they know it is their demise. In fact, that leads to the fourth thing. Notice in the text that these kings try to stand off at a distance. Just like everybody else, they try to stand off at a distance as if they could remove themselves from Babylon's judgment. But they cannot. They are too tied in with Babylon. In fact, the demise of Babylon is their demise. The demise of Babylon is the demise of her people. They stand at a distance, but they cannot remove themselves from the wrath of God that is coming. Fifth thing. Notice in the text that they call her the strong city. These kings refer to Babylon as the strong city. And they were the kings of that city. But that city fell. In fact, the text says repeatedly, in one hour. In one quick hour, Babylon fell. And that's the way it goes with the kingdoms of this world. They may look strong. They may look invincible. They may seem indestructible. But under the wrath of God, they are wiped out in one hour. It is sure, it is sudden, it is total. And that's the way it goes with the kingdoms of this world. Under the wrath of God, no one can stand. Not even the strong city, Babylon. She fell in one hour. So those are the kings of the earth. The next group are the merchants of the earth. And I'm not going to read through that text again because it's, it's super long and fairly redundant for a reason. And I'll explain why it's redundant in a minute. But I want you to see, first of all, the deep irony that is in verse 11. When it says, The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. These merchants suddenly find themselves in a situation where no one is buying or selling. And you may recognize the irony here already because earlier in Revelation, we saw many people would take the mark of the beast because without it, no one could buy or sell. Do you remember that? Like many people took the mark of the beast because if you didn't have the mark of the beast, you couldn't be in the marketplace and you couldn't buy and sell. Well, these are the very people who took that mark so that they could buy and sell while the faithful followers of Jesus struggled to survive because they did not have the mark of the beast, they had the mark of the living God on their foreheads, and they couldn't buy and sell, but they struggled to survive where these guys who lived in luxury, now, now they suddenly find themselves unable to buy and sell. In the end, their alignment with the beast, their alignment with his kingdom, with Babylon and with the prostitute, it ran its course. And now they find themselves as the ones who cannot buy and sell. Friends, mark it down. If you align yourself with Babylon, you may live your best life for a while, but it will come crashing down at some point, and you will face the wrath of God. So come out of her. Come out of Babylon. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you need to do that for the very first time at conversion. For conversion, you need to come out of darkness and into light. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And some of you need to come out of Babylon in sanctification. Some of you are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you live according to Babylonian standards. Come out of her and live as citizens of the kingdom of God with righteousness and holiness that befits those who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. You may notice that in that long list of items that the merchants used to trade in, you see a clear example of the depravity of Babylon's system. 
all those mentions of silver and gold and horses and chariots and cinnamon and spices and all those things, that's one thing. But notice at the end of the list it says, and also cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. This is the way Babylon makes, makes a dollar. This is the way Babylon supports its system, is by human trafficking and slavery. That was a massive problem in first century Rome. And friends, it's a massive problem around us even today. Grant Osborne said of first century Rome, the slave trade was immense. There were an estimated 10 million or close to 20% of the population of the Roman Empire. In fact, that's the most conservative estimate I read. Grant Osborne is the most conservative when it comes to those numbers. Many other scholars argue there were way more slaves in Rome than that. How did Rome, how did Babylon build its empire? On the back of slaves. That's the way of Babylon. Whatever it takes to make a dollar. Sound familiar at all? Also, in that long list of items that the merchants used to trade in but do not anymore, I want you to notice the appeal of the prostitute. These are her lures. Is there anything on that list, maybe, maybe except slaves and, and humans, is there anything that on that list that isn't somewhat attractive to you? Is there anything on that list that is unattractive to us? We're talking about cinnamon and spice. We're talking about real important and valuable wood, steel and iron. All of these things, are, are not those enticing to us as well? In fact, look around, are not many people around us living for these kind of things? And if we're honest with ourselves, are not we tempted to pursue those things at any cost? To fill our houses up with spices, gold and silver and expensive clothes? Is not there a constant lure from our culture to say, this is what life is about. Fill your house up with stuff. Heed the warning in verse 14. When God's word says, the fruit, of you, the fruit you long for has gone from you. And all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you. And men will no longer find them. This is why I had Laura read from Mark chapter 8 a while ago. Not, not so much because of the first part, although I think the first part of the text, when there's this conversation with the disciples about, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God, right? And the, he'll be handed over to the chief priest. All that is solid, central gospel truth, Right? And then right after that, he talks about how we've got to separate from the world. We, we can't love our life here. If we love our life here and we invest only in our lives here, we'll lose it in the end. But if we lose our lives here, we will gain eternal life. Look what he says in verse 34. I'll remind you of it again. It says, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. That's way different than Babylon, right? Babylon is not at all interested in denying herself. She's all about indulging herself. If you want to come after Jesus, you deny yourself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? How, how many around us are gaining the whole world and forfeiting their souls in the process? How many of us are in danger of that on this very day? Verse 37 says, For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus, in the midst of central gospel teaching, says these words. Babylon doesn't live like that. This is a whole different kingdom that Jesus is talking about. You may remember also Matthew chapter 6, which has been part of my daily reading over the last couple of days in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These guys from Babylon, these merchants of Babylon, they had stored up all kinds of treasure on the earth. Their heart was clearly here. Because when all that is taken away, what do they do? They weep and mourn. They wail and they cry. Because all that they had stored up was taken away. Friends, let's not make that same mistake. Don't store up for yourselves treasures here. Store up treasures in heaven. Don't live for this worldly kingdom. Live for the eternal kingdom. It is a fool. It is the fool who lives for the temporary pleasures of this world. Only a fool lives for what the prostitute has to offer. These merchants, the text teaches, got rich from her. But they try to stay at a distance as well. Like their whole life has been wrapped up in Babylon, but when wrath comes on Babylon, they try to, try to keep back. Try to keep back for fear of her torment as if they could somehow now escape it. No, no, no. They are tied so closely to her that her fall is their fall as well. And they weep not because of remorse for their worldliness, not because of remorse for their sinfulness, but because of their loss of income. And look at the end. Look at verse 16. They say, Whoa, whoa, the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. She had everything they wanted, and they went all in with her, and it was gone in one hour. There's a real danger here. And there is a strong warning to all of us in this text. And I pray that God will give us ears to hear it. That we would not be like this. Danny Aiken says a really helpful pastoral thing when he says, Wealth is great while it lasts, but therein lies the problem. It does not last. Ever. It will not last. Ever. How many preachers have you said, Never seen a hearse with a U-Haul tied to it, right? It is cliche for a reason. If you live for this world, that's all you get. Wealth is great while it lasts, but it does not last. And these merchants are learning that the hard way. And then there's a third group. The shipmasters and passengers and sailors. This is the middle of verse 17. It's a little bit difficult, I'll admit, to distinguish between these sailors from the merchants that we just talked about because their work is clearly tied together. But they are treated in the text as a third distinct group. And you'll notice that this group also stands at a distance. But they also cannot escape the judgment of Babylon. They are guilty as well. And one of the things you'll notice about these sailors is that they are really upset about this. The other groups are mourning and weeping and crying and crying out. But this group is extra emotional about it. In fact, there's language, emotional language. It says they throw dust on their heads and they are crying out, weeping and mourning. They are really upset. And this is perhaps the clearest place where we see the selfishness of their perspective. They articulate it. 
They are upset because all who had ships became rich by her wealth. This is in the text. For in one hour she had been laid waste. Why are they upset? They had their whole world invested in these ships, and now they're not worth anything. It's been laid waste in an hour. The source of their great wealth is gone. They are not sorrowful over their sin. They're sorrowful over their loss. John MacArthur says this about that mentality. Nothing so clearly reveals the hardness of sinners' hearts as their lack of sorrow over their sin. And friend, I want to ask you how often you're guilty of that. You sin, you get caught sinning, and you feel the consequences of that sin, and you're sorrowful about it. But you're not sorrowful over the sin. You're not sorrowful of offending a holy God. You're sorrowful about you got caught and now your life has been changed. And there are tears, but perhaps they're not godly tears that lead to repentance, that lead to life. Perhaps they are worldly tears that only lead to death. Those are the kind of tears these guys are crying. Not the kind of tears the people of God should cry when they sin. They are selfish, just like the rest. So we've seen these three groups of Babylonians and how they respond to the fall of Babylon. And when we zoom out, what we see is that the people of Babylon are weeping and mourning over the fall of Babylon, not because of their sorrow for sin, but because of the loss of their way of life that they loved so much. They think they can stand off at a distance and not share in the fall of Babylon, but her demise is their demise as well. They will not escape the wrath of God. That's what we see from their response. And the angel who is declaring all of this, who is describing all of this, then gives a command. Like there are a couple of times in Revelation chapter 18 where the angel gives a command. It's it's an imperative verb. It's a call to action. And this is one of them. Look what he says. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Everybody else that's tied in with Babylon is weeping and mourning and throwing dust on their heads and throwing a fit. And the angel says to the people of God, rejoice. I want you to nail down the recipient of this command. It's the same group that was commanded earlier in the text last week to come out of her. That's the other imperative in Revelation chapter 18. Come out of her. That's addressed to the people of God. You don't don't live in Babylon. You come out of her. The same group is directed to rejoice. All of heaven, the saints, the apostles, and the prophets. In other words, the kingdom of God. These are not the earth dwellers, not the ones who have aligned with the beast, not the ones who have aligned with the prostitute in Babylon. This is the kingdom of God, the people of God. This is us. Is it you? It's the question I want you to wrestle with today. Are you part of the group that is called to rejoice over this? Or are you among the group that weeps and laments and cries over the destruction of Babylon? We are called in this text as God's people to rejoice over her. While the Babylonians and the earth dwellers weep, we rejoice. That's hard to read, isn't it? Like for us who are God's people, it's hard to to hear the angel say, when you watch this happen, rejoice. Rejoice over this. I think Grant Osborne is helpful when he says, the joy here is not over the souls that are lost. 
Like, that's not what we're rejoicing over. We're not, we're not saying, yeah, finally, they got theirs. That neighbor of mine, he was a scoundrel, and I didn't like him anyway, and so I'm thankful that he gets his in the end. That's not the rejoicing. He says the joy is not over the souls that are lost, but over the vindication of God's people and the honor of God's name, which is emphasized in the Lord's Prayer of Matthew chapter 6-9 that says, may your name be honored or made sacred. Hallowed be your name is how we know that. That's what we rejoice over, is the vindication of God's holiness. The judgment of Babylon is the vindication of God's holiness. And so we can rejoice. This sinfulness, this godlessness, this rebellion and idolatry and immorality of Babylon does not go unpunished. Wrath comes upon Babylon in vindication of the righteousness and holiness of God. And that should cause us to rejoice. That he is righteous and seen to be righteous in the judgment of these worldly systems. It is also vindication of God's people. And that's another reason why we can rejoice. It's a vindication of God's people. Verse 24 makes that connection with the martyrs who have died before. Look at verse 24. It says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. In fact, when we get into chapter 19 next week, you're going to see more of this kind of language, which takes us back to chapter 6. In fact, flip back there to chapter 6. It's been a long time since we were in Revelation chapter 6. But this is a scene that you probably remember. And one that has really been under the current of everything we have seen since then. This, this longing for vindication for the martyrs has been under a lot of what we've seen since chapter 6. Look at it in verse 9. Revelation 6, 9 says... When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, the martyrs, and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would be completed. How long, O oh Lord? Just a little while longer. Just a little while longer, and he will avenge their blood. Just a little while longer, and those who took their blood will pay. And that's what we're seeing here in Revelation chapter 18. Super interesting the way New American Standard translates this phrase, God has pronounced judgment for you against her. God has pronounced judgment for you against her. In other words, the people of God will be mistreated. They will be oppressed, persecuted, even killed by Babylon and her people. But God will make it right. God will make it right. They will pay for that. So we rejoice. We are called to rejoice over the righteous judgment of God and the vindication of his faithful servants. Verse 20 is huge. Babylonians weep. The people of God rejoice. Verse 21 through 24 is an illustration of the stark and sudden fall of Babylon. There's some weird stuff in the language. Like in the original language, there's a bunch of double and triple negatives that are going on. Like, 
not, no more, nowhere. It is a very redneck way to say it's over. Right? No more of that, nowhere, no how, not no more. It's, it's really strange language, but it heaps on this idea that this, in the heyday of the city of Babylon, silence seemed unimaginable. Deceit, this defeat seemed preposterous. How could Babylon ever, how could Rome ever come down? And he says, there will come a day where there will be no more harpists, no more brides, no more work, no more ships, none of it, no more, never again. It's all coming to an end. It seems unimaginable, but it is inevitable. The destruction of Babylon and those who are aligned with her. So let's step back a minute. Step back a minute from all of this and consider a question that I posed earlier. If Rome was Babylon in the first century, where is Babylon today? Just think about that. This is, this is going to be hard. I have fretted over this all week. Some, some of you are not going to like this at all. And I have been praying that God will give me wisdom to handle it well. I think there are things that we need to hear today that we're not going to like to hear today. And even our not liking what we hear may be evidence that our hearts are all messed up. Where is Babylon today? Well, to get there, we need to think about what marks Babylon. What, what are the marks of Babylon? Daryl W. Johnson identifies seven marks of Babylon from the text for the last few weeks. Seven things that really identify Babylon. I want you to look at them, and we're going to leave them up there so you can think about them for a while. He says, number one, Babylon leaves the living God out of the equation. She seeks to glorify herself and not God. She leaves God out of the equation, tries to push God off to the side. Daryl Johnson adds a little comment after this when he says, until disaster strikes. Babylon doesn't want anything to do with God until disaster strikes, and then all they want to do with God is, is someone to relieve them. Babylon leaves God out of the equation. Number two, Babylon is marked by sensuality, this luxurious living, this pleasing of the flesh. Number three, Babylon's marked by injustice. Daryl Johnson comments, how many Babylons are built on the backs of slaves? And you may think that slavery is not a problem today in the world. And I would argue, till the day I die, it's more a problem today on planet Earth than it was in the first century. More slaves today than there ever have been. Markets, countries, cultures are being built upon the backs of slaves. Some directly and some indirectly. Babylon is marked by injustice. Fourthly, Babylon is marked by a worship of products. Did you catch all that list when it came to the merchants? All the things she was so proud of. You can just imagine like walking through a market and seeing the cinnamon and the spices and the this and the that. And I got this section over here and this. Look at all that we have to offer. We've got it all. We can meet all your needs here in Babylon. Whatever you're craving, whatever you're desiring, we can provide it. Babylon worships products. Number five, Babylon is prone to violence. Babylonians kill the people of God. They pour out their blood simply because they testify to the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Babylon will kill them. 
Babylon is marked by deception and counterfeit. Not the truth. Deception, counterfeit, sneaky lies. And seventh, idolatry. When I worked through this list with the guys on Tuesday, one guy said, yeah, we could have just had number seven, period. Because all the rest of those things are idolatry. All, all the rest of those things are symptoms of the big problem that is idolatry. And Babylon is completely given to idolatry. I want to ask you if this sounds familiar. Those seven things. Sound familiar? To me, it sounds a lot like the culture that surrounds us every day. To me, it sounds a lot like the United States of America. And I don't mean to sound anti-American. I believe that this is the case all over the world today, actually. But I don't live all over the world. You don't live all over the world. You don't live in a bunch of different cultures over there. You live here, and I live here, and this is all around us. You cannot escape it if you turn on the television. All seven of those things you can see in an hour. You cannot escape it if you walk down the road. You cannot escape it if you go to work. We live here, and this is the worldly system. And America is a major player if not the biggest player in the game. Friends, this text is teaching us that that will not stand. That will not last. I want you to know that America is not the eternal kingdom of God. It just isn't. Church is the eternal kingdom of God. Not America. Those are two different things. And that difference is more easily seen now than maybe ever. In fact, let me be so bold as to say our culture reeks of Babylon. So how do we respond to it? Like if we, if we put ourselves in the shoes of the audience of this book, if this text was about America, if it was about secular American culture and declared its imminent and sudden fall, that's what this was talking about. What would our response be? Would we be like the kings and the merchants and the sailors? Would we weep because our lives are so tied with her that her fall is our fall? Would we weep like they do because the life we built has crumbled and everything we love has disappeared? Would we respond like the merchants and throw dust on our heads and say, it's over, it's over. Whoa, whoa, the great city has fallen. There is no hope. Or would we be like the angels and the saints and the apostles and the prophets rejoicing over the vindication of God's righteousness, rejoicing over our own, in, in our own vindication as we lived with holiness in this world and took a beating because of it? How would we respond? I'm convicted that our response depends on our relationship with Babylon. And our relationship with Babylon is evidence of our relationship with the Lord or lack thereof. You cannot be aligned with Babylon and be aligned with Jesus Christ. You just can't. They're polar opposites. Our response depends on our relationship with Babylon, and our relationship with Babylon is evidence of our relationship with the Lord or lack thereof. And so I'm inviting all of us to examine ourselves here. 
Where is our identity? Is it with the world or is it with the Lord? If the world came crashing down tomorrow, could you go on walking with Jesus? Is he your treasure? Is he your life? And if not, repent. Repent or be destroyed. I think that's what this text is teaching. You either repent of Babylonianism or you're destroyed under the wrath of God. I'm troubled by this. I'm troubled by this especially because of the desperation I am hearing from people who identify with Jesus and observe the potential weaknesses of America lately. Like believers in Jesus who watch the news and then are totally devastated as if our hope rises and falls with Washington. As if if our hope eternally rises and falls with the United States of America. It does not, friends. If we belong to Jesus and America falls this afternoon, we still belong to Jesus. And we walk with him through the darkness or in the light. Our identity is not there. It is with the Lord. It must be. I am troubled by the desperation I hear when believers engage politics today. It's as if their identity is primarily red, white, and blue. And and not in Christ alone. And listen, if you happen to find yourself extremely offended by what I've said so far, you're probably aligned with Babylon. If you're like, no preacher of mine is going to talk about America like that. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about Jesus. And that's what I've been called to do. <laughs> and it seems to me like the broader culture of America isn't aligned with Jesus right now. And so I want to stand over here with Jesus. I'm going to leave it at that. Whatever's stirring in your heart may be an indication of what's in your heart. The expository commentary says this about this whole section. It says, John proclaims there is a day coming when the glittering beauty of those who have unjustly enriched themselves will be defaced. The dazzling woman with expensive jewels and stunning clothing will be unmasked as a prostitute. Those who crawled into bed with her will face the same judgment. We will see then the upside-down kingdom. Those who belong to the Lord will be exalted, while those who rejected him will be humiliated. The reversal will happen quickly and will shock and astonish those who have given their allegiance to the city of man. They will be filled with grief as they see everything they've given their lives to slipping away. John's message for his churches and for us is to not be lured and enticed by the harlot. Her charms and beauty and riches, they beckon us, but her joys are short-lived and her time of judgment is coming. So I call you again with the voice of the angel, come out of her. Come out of her and live faithfully unto the Lord Jesus Christ wherever you find yourself. Whatever culture surrounds you, live faithfully unto the Lord Jesus Christ and preach the gospel of hope to that world and invite them to come out with you. J.D. Greer said in his address to the Southern Baptist Convention last week, he said, God has not called us primarily to save America politically. He has called us to make the gospel known to all. That's primary. So be as politically active as you want. 
but know that the only hope of eternal salvation is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So give your lives to preaching that. James Hamilton Jr., for application. He says, when the day comes, what will you be doing? Will you be wailing for those who live for Babylon? Or will you be rejoicing with those who live for God? Will you live for what will be destroyed, or will you live for God, who alone can satisfy your longings? This really is a question about where your heart is and what you really enjoy. Do you enjoy the world, or do you enjoy God? Do you long to be with God, or would you really rather go to a nice restaurant, the mall, maybe a football game, and enjoy yourself? That's super convicting. Do you enjoy God, or do you enjoy yourself? Babylon glorifies herself. The people of God glorify God. On Tuesday, when we talked about this question, it might be on your minds about when this occurs, when the fall of Babylon happens, when it all comes crashing down on Babylon, will it be too late for the people in Babylon to repent? Like when the merchants don't have any place to sell their stuff anymore, will it be too late for them to repent? When the kings see that their strong city has fallen, will it be too late to repent? It's the wrong question. Part of the design of this text is to bring the reader to repentance whether in initial conversion or for the progress of his discipleship for those who have been saved. Whether it will be too late to repent then or not, I don't know. What I do know is this, and I am 100% confident in this. It is not too late to repent today. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that you could be forgiven of your sins and restored to the Father. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that you could have a home that is eternal in the heavens. Jesus Christ died and rose again so that you would have a hope that sustains you through the suffering and pain of this world. Jesus Christ died and rose again for you. What does Babylon have to offer? Nothing but death and wrath for eternity. So unbeliever, come to Jesus and live. Come to Jesus and live. Unbeliever, come out of Babylon. Christian, come out of Babylon and live. If you stay with her, you will die. With all that said, I can't wait to get to chapter 19 next week. Can't wait to talk about the bride and the new city. Glorious parts of Christ's return. But let's let this sit with us till then. This is a strong warning. Where's your heart? To whom does your heart belong? That's all that matters. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, help us in this moment to receive and embrace all that is right and true and good. Help us reject all that came from Chris, from this world. Change us by your grace. Father, we want to live as your people. We want to be your people. Come out of Babylon and live. Come to Jesus and live. I pray for lost people that you'll bring them to yourself. Give them faith and repentance salvation by your grace. Pray for your church. Pray for your church that you will squash and crush, demolish every idol and lift up the Lord Jesus Christ that we would worship him all of our days. In his name we pray. Amen.
We're going to sing. If you want to talk to a pastor, we're here. If you need to respond just in singing, do that. If you want to talk to somebody about church membership, now's the time. You respond as the Lord leads. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised. 